Welcome to the Just Be Real Sis podcast. I'm Dr. Angela. And I'm Candace. We believe that women can win together. We live boldly. We live authentically. We live unapologetically. And we encourage you to do the same. We understand the need for real conversations with diverse perspectives because we are more alike than we are different. We know that inclusion and honesty are our superpowers. The only requirement to join us. Just, just be, be real, sis. Hi, guys, and welcome back to Just Be Real, Sis. We have an amazing show for you today. We have a guest that has been all over the country as of recently because she has written this amazing book. And you know how we are about books and books that make an impact in the world. So today is no different. Today, our guest is the Minda Hart. She is the author of The Memo, How to Women of Color Can Secure Their Seat at the Table. So let me tell you a little bit about Minda, and then we're going to hear from her. Minda Hart is the CEO of The Memo, LLC, a career development platform for women of color and an assistant professor at NYU Wagner. She's been featured on MSNBC's Morning Joe and Fast Company and speaks at companies like Microsoft, Levi's, and Google. She hosts the podcast, Secure the Seat, and lives in New York City. So please join us in welcoming Minda Hart. Hi, Minda. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Before we get started talking about this amazing book, let me first say this. One of the things that we say at Just Be Real Sis is we have the tough conversations that aren't always easy but always necessary. And today will definitely be that. So before we get started with the book, Minda, please talk to our listeners a little bit about the amazing opportunities that have come about as a result of your book and some of the companies you've been sharing your message with. Yeah, again, thank you both for having me. You know, it's so interesting when you put your your baby out into the world, you don't know who will read it, (laughs) who will resonate with it and all of those things. But when I wrote the memo, I wrote it not just with myself in mind, but I wrote it so that women that look like me and those who consider themselves allies could read about what our experiences are like in the workplace, since we often don't get to read about our experiences. And due to that, and not just uh, me writing the book, but people finding it like yourselves and sharing it and talking about it, um, and advocating for me to come into their companies because um, oftentimes I found that many women of color, black women, may not be in a position to be able to talk about some of the biases, the microaggressions. And so um, I am able to come in and talk about those things and and uh, lighten the load a bit. And because of that, I've been invited to companies like Nike, actually Nike a couple of times at different locations, um, Microsoft, uh, Levi's, as you said, I've been to Best Buy, I've been to Intel, Estee Lauder, Saks Fifth Avenue. I mean, some of the biggest brands uh, in the in the world, and they're leaning into their courage to have these critical conversations. Right? They're not saying that uh, we had get everything right, but we're willing to start the dialogue and um, see what we can do to make action steps. So for me, it's really been just awesome to go into these companies and have these conversations about race, which we often don't get to have. Yeah, that's amazing. Like it's, it almost feels like the moment that, okay, we can finally have these conversations and people are understanding the value of having the conversations, but not just from a standpoint of, you know, what is it that you want to talk about now, but Hey, let's work together to figure this thing out and how we can move forward in a positive way. 
Um, so yeah, what we'll do first is we will um, start with the first chapter, which I love the title. It's called The Ugly Truth. <laughs> and sometimes the truth is just that. And so what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to read passages from the memo and then give Minda an opportunity to speak to certain topics around those passages, just to give you just a taste of what this book is about and hopefully encourage you to go out and get it today. So <clears throat> the first passage was interesting because you share personal experiences and professional ones as well, but this one stood out. So in Chapter 1, The Ugly Truth, there's a section called Racial Growing Pains. And you talk about a time when you picked up your boss and one of his colleagues before a meeting. And you said, it was a Sunday afternoon and I was wearing a summer dress, sandals, and a fresh manicure. The color was burnt orange. My boss and another colleague hopped into the rental car. About 10 minutes down the road, my boss joked, you people love your bright colors. He laughed like it was a comedy night at the Apollo. And my other male colleague chimed in with his agreement. I will never understand how my nail color turned into a 15-minute conversation on how black people love bright colors. Whoa. So this is how we start the conversation in the book. And it gets um, deeper than that. So let me ask you this. Sitting there in that moment, and if you're a woman of color, you've probably experienced microaggressions on a daily basis. Talk to us a little bit about what that moment was like and what it taught you after you experienced it. Yeah, it's funny that you read that passage because that's when I've been across the country, that's the passage that I read. I read that portion of uh, racial growing pains because I need people to, I need to paint the picture, right? For those who don't understand <laughs> what it's like. And for me, that was my first corporate job. That was the, I was so excited to be there and to have my boss say that to me and joke around um, and you can say all day and night that you don't mean any harm or all those things, but at some point it starts to mean us harm. And Dr. Angela, I'll have to say in that moment, because I didn't know what to say, I didn't know if I could say anything, that was the moment in my career where I slowly learned to silence myself. I slowly learned mm -hmm. to tell myself the story that they didn't mean any harm. Um, and that I have to manage these emotions and move forward. And it really is a, when I talk about it now, it's very sobering because as a, the only one, uh, those are the things we sometimes tell ourselves just to be able to survive. And so telling that story was so important because A, it shows two things. My, my boss obviously was um, culturally incompetent, but number two, my other colleague did nothing. You know, He didn't come to me afterwards and say anything. He didn't say anything in the moment. And that would, and, be, and because I didn't know what to say or do, my boss would end up for the next couple of years that I worked for him, that became an everyday occurrence, something like that. And so you, you begin to be numb and then tell yourself that, you know, that's just Bob being Bob, but Bob being Bob is not okay. That is so real. Um, Sister, you and I had this conversation all the time of what it's like to sometimes, well, oftentimes, have to mute yourself because you know that maybe the person who said that comment, it's almost like we're protective of other people when we are the ones who've been hurt. And that can be a tough pill to swallow a lot of times. So since I know you and I, we talked about this a lot. I'd like 
just want you to share a little bit about some of the things that you said regarding this topic as well. Well, if Bob can be Bob, then Candace needs to be Candace. (laughs) 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 So that's really all I have to say on that matter. But um, I I think that that's that's been the miss. And again, you know, I I thanked Minda on just having the courage to say the things that I've I've been thinking over the years and I've experienced. And, um, you know, my question would be, you know, how long did it really take? You said you have just, you know, you said I've become numb to it. How long did it take? What was that aha moment when you said, you know, um, this is not okay. And and I have to speak up about it. Yeah. You know, Candace, I, I wish that I could say that after a couple more of those cuts, uh, from the bobs of the workplace, (laughs) I, that I learned my lesson, right. That I learned to, to lean into my courage, but it took several years before I, woke up and realized, you know what, I have to start centering myself. Um, There's this really great quote that I really live by, and and it's by Audre Lorde, and it says, beware of feeling like you're not good enough to deserve it. And when I heard that quote several years ago, I was like, wow, I do deserve better. I I shouldn't be just surviving in the workplace. And, And just as Bob or whomever, you know, being a little facetious there, but whoever, they're centering their self, they're putting themselves first. And how am I making the workplace better than I found it? And making it better is not accepting these things, right? It's figuring out how to have the conversations and make it better. And so even though I was nervous to start to speak up um, for myself in, in in a diplomatic way, I realized that I wasn't just doing it for me, but I was doing it for all the other women of color that come behind me. Because if I don't speak up, then they're gonna inherit the same counterparts that I have. And so for me, it, it was reminding myself that it's bigger than me. Mm. That's huge. That's huge because it's not always to be, you know, it's not always easy to be the person that steps out front and has those conversations. Um, so we commend you for that. You're right. It, it's bigger than all of us. And we say that all the time, specifically about this podcast, because we know that it goes to a variety of audiences, but these are the conversations that we must have if we want to move forward together in a real way. It doesn't always feel good, um, but, you know, we have to go through that part of it so we can get to the other side of it. So and I thank think, you for that. Yeah, I think people will say, well, you know, and I've heard this, well, that was something small. Why are we making such a big deal? And those small things, if they happen every day, and now I'm the topic mm-hmm. of conversation, then that's when they become really big. Um, and so I want yeah. people to understand that. So, sister, you know the conversation we had about the mosquitoes. Right. right? Share that. That we, we liken microaggressions to mosquito bites. And so the way we try to make it relevant to the people is imagine that every day when you leave your home, you know that you're going to be bitten by a mosquito. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know how often it's going to happen, but you know that it will. And it's always unexpected. And we know what happens with the mosquito bite. It lies just under the skin, but it's irritating. And all you can do is try to ignore it, but it's still there. And so at what point are you going to still be okay going out every day knowing that this is going to happen to you? Um, And so that has been a way that we've been able to try to have this conversation and make people understand they may not always experience it on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a really great analogy. Yeah, so go ahead. So that leads us into the next 
chapter so uh, chapter two talks about building your squad and being strategic um and this isn't building your squad in the way probably most people would think um so mindy you said every good thing happens with strategy so networking events outside work with your colleagues are not i repeat they are not <laughs> opportunities to get drunk and turn up they are opportunities to advocate for yourself so can you talk to our listeners of ways that they can advocate for themselves in a network uh, networking setting? Yeah, it's so funny. You know, the, the pushback that I get. So, you know, people love the, the book, the memo, most people, and they'll say, oh, but I really don't want to network. I really don't want to build relationships. I just want to do my job and go home. Right. And and I say, well, you know, who is that happy hour? You know, who is at the workroom birthday? party? <laughs> it's our counterparts. Right. So, um, and I think for us, you know, as black women, we've been conditioned to work really hard, right? And the story is that if you work really hard, somebody will notice it. And sometimes it will, they will. Uh, but it's very few and far between that hard work gets you to that seat. Um, and what I was doing, I was coming in early, staying late, doing all the things. But I realized my counter, my colleagues, they were getting these promotions, they were getting these opportunities, and they didn't do half the work as I did. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And then I realized that they were building relationships with the Bobs and, you know, the Kims of the workplace. And they, while I'm sitting at home wondering how that happened, they're at the happy hours, right? And so I realized that if I wanted, want that seat, I've got to do something different. And I didn't just go to happy hours for the sake of going to happy hours. I knew that, you know, Steve was going to be there. And if this was my only opportunity to have some FaceTime with Steve, then I got to go. <laughs> I don't have to stay all night, you know, but if I do, I, I need to have my karaoke song ready. You know what I mean? So, but, but now even more so in this um, new normal, this remote working environment, I, I really want to impress upon uh, your listeners that this is definitely the time where we have to be strategic and ask for those virtual coffees you know, because there's conversations being had about our future and we're not in these Zoom rooms. So who do you need to be connecting with? Who do you need to be emailing with? Because this is not the time to shrink, but the time to create opportunity for ourselves. So building those relationships, it doesn't stop because COVID-19 happened. We have to still keep doing that because when those opportunities arise, you know who they're gonna give them to? The people that they know. <laughs> people they can vouch for and it's so important that we position ourselves and again it's not about um and you don't even have to drink right you know and it's not just happy hours but the virtual chats um uh events volunteering i know in my old um company there used to be volunteer days right on saturday so going to some of those things and just letting them see your face and i think having that FaceTime, it really does it's a game changer yeah, that, that definitely is on us. Um, I've said, you know, the only reward for hard work is more hard work. So as you put your head down, uh, people just, they come to expect that from you. And um, I can use my own experience with that. To your point, I've attended um, several business meetings, but there's one particular customer that I really wanted to call on. And the only way that he was willing to take that conversation was actually at a city current event that we were doing. Um, and he was right beside me. And so I think what it showed him was that I serve in my community just like you do. And so to your point, it doesn't have to be necessarily 
uh, happy hour, but just understand that when you're at these different events, you have to be strategic, know who's in the room. And then I say, identify those three people and already have some, you know, some sort of um, value add that you can talk to them about. So completely agree with that. So that's definitely, that falls on us to take um, the initiative and be responsible, say, hey, I I'd love to have that conversation with you. So really good advice. Sister, no, I'm going to say, I think you hit on something important, sister, and we don't want to gloss over that. It is important to show up in the room, but it's also important to show up prepared when you get there. Do your research ahead of time. Like you said, know who's in the room. Know something that you can connect with that person on outside of just the day-to-day -to, -day to show them that you've done your research. So it's important to have that space, but make sure you're prepared for it when that door opens. Yeah, because, you know, you often think about how many times have we been in, like, the elevator with the powers that be, right? And we don't say anything or they say hi to us and we just say, oh, fine, or it's good. No, these are the opportunities when they ask you how you are. Oh, I'm doing great. And I'm actually working on this really awesome project I want to tell you about. You know, having, being ready at, at any time because you never know when you're going to be able to shoot your shot. Well, after this virus, I, I'm attending all events. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the house so much. It doesn't matter what. Uh, it's on a Tuesday night at 830. I'm there. <laughs> like, Let me We're plan it. I'm, I'm going to be the, the planner for it. Right? <laughs> exactly. We're going everywhere. We are going everywhere. No, this is so good. So you talked about building your squad. Networking is a part of that. Um, sister and I have this thing where we say check your circle. And so part of building your squad is making sure that you have people around you that are supportive as well. How has that benefited you? in your path, making sure that you have the right people around you to keep you encouraged when these things are happening in the workplace. Oh, man. I mean, th that's your lifeline. Right? <laughs> if you're one of the only ones or one of few, things can feel really isolating. And so having people on your squad, your team, your board of directors, whatever you want to call them, having people you can connect with um, is really important. And also people who can speak your name when you're not in the room, right? And who you can speak their name when they're not in the room. So I think it's really, um, I often say that <laughs> success is not a solo sport, right? And if you think that you're gonna get somewhere by yourself, you're kidding yourself, right? So you need to identify who are those people, just like any, any team, right? They have players. You are the captain of your team. You need your teammates. And you, in order to win the game, and I think it goes back to our conversation on strategy, once you pick the right people, and, and, and they may not stay forever, they may be in your, your circle for a season, you know, but it's important that you have people uh, that, are, that are there who can give you good feedback, give you loving critiques, um, and all of the things. But I, I think it's really important that we put ourselves out there, and I think sometimes that's the hard part, right? Putting ourselves out there and letting people know what we need and what we want. You can't climb a ladder with one hand. <laughs> yep. I like that. Period. Or like, I like to say, sister, you need to get some real friends. <laughs> That'll <laughs> tell the truth. <laughs> so listen, game changer when you have that. But no, it, it's interesting because it, it leads into like the, the discussion that you had in chapter three where you talk about the politics of the workplace. And one passage that stood out for us, and I'll share it now, was when you talked about some of the biases, in particular when it came to the hiring process. And so you said another example of bias in the hiring process is all the problems people had with my first name. My government name is Yasminda. As beautiful as I think my name is, I had to start using Minda 
at a young age because my teachers had a hard time pronouncing it. I remember being five years old and frustrated with adults. I guess the why prevented them from even trying. In kindergarten, I told my family to start calling me Minda. From that day forward, Yasminda became invisible. When I read that, I had so many emotions around that passage because, you know, your name is, is like the first thing that you own that belongs just to you. And there's such a sense of pride and ownership. And so to be five years old and to say, you know, people won't take the time to see me enough to remember my name. Um, talk to us about the moment when you realize the importance of owning all parts of who you are. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, even now people say, well, why don't, why didn't you put Yasminda on your book cover, right? And it's, it's one of those mm -hmm. things that you still, there's certain pieces of yourself that you allow yourself to bring, right? And, and from a young age, this world has told me that Yasminda was too hard, that Yasminda um, is too ethnic. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, there's so many other things that I can't control, like my skin color, maybe my hair, some of these things. And I'm like, you know what, but I can control what, what name I put on my resume so that I'm not experiencing these hiring biases. And at the time, I thought maybe I was doing myself a favor, right? This was what I had to do. This is a survival uh, mechanism for many of us people of color. And we do that and we learn at a young age um, to make these concessions to who we are. And so it's funny because I didn't even realize how many um, concessions I had made on who I was until, you know, maybe like seven years ago when I just was like, man, I keep hearing people say, bring your authentic self to work, but whose version of authenticity are we talking about? <laughs> and because I had conformed to all of these ideas that, I, that the majority had had placed on me, I didn't know who that was anymore. I don't, didn't know who my authentic self was. And so it was really key for me again to write this book because if we can give someone else that piece of freedom that they may be able to do it a little sooner than we may have or whatever the case, you know, that, that we're saying, hey, you have an option, right? Sometimes we think we don't have options and it goes back to the quote I said, beware of feeling like you're not good enough to deserve it. At the time, I thought that this was this is what I got to do to survive, right? And even now when I go to different universities and colleges and there's um, black young women and men, and the first thing they'll ask me, not about how do I negotiate my salary, you know, um, what should I wear to an interview? They ask me, should I use my real name or not? In 2020, this is what's on top of mind for them. And it breaks my heart that this is still something that they're worried about. And I often say, listen, I want you to show up who you want to show up as. You make that decision, right? And only you can do that. And I think that, again, the more we talk about these ugly truths of the workplace, then our counterparts and those in hiring positions can understand that conscious or unconsciously, these things are happening. So let me tell you how close this is to me, Minda. Um, my sister, her name is Jamesetta Lashonda. And when I read this part of the book, when I read this passage, I called her. I said, she's talking about you. And she got really emotional. Um, and I'm trying not to get emotional um, because she, for her entire life, no one called her Jane Setta. We didn't even as a family. 
And it started in grade school. Her teacher told her that's too masculine of a name. Why would your mother put James in your name? We're calling you something else. So when you talk about the concessions that have been made, uh, now she's a full grown woman. So you will call her Jamesetta and she's funny. Um, but for years, she was not comfortable with that. And like Angela said, sister just said it. She said, that's your name. Like that is what we start with. So again, um, when she read your book, she said, please tell Minda. And every time we have someone on, I just have to tell you, I know this is why you do it. You have touched so many people, my sister being one of them. Mm. Thank you. And, you know, we don't even realize, I think that the point, I'm so sorry that your sister went through that, but we don't even realize what we've, the concessions that we've made till we take a, a pause, right? To say, oh my God. And that was when writing the book, when I started writing, I was like, Whew, I had to take some pauses in between because I'm like, this is some real like trauma and we don't understand how, how that impacts us going forward. To even what you name your own children when you decide yeah. to have children. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, we told you guys that this, we get real here and <laughs> we have to take a deep breath after that one. Cause that's such a powerful realization. When you step back and you take a look at yourself and you say, you know, it starts with your name, and then what else have I given up? What else have I compromised? What else have I done to fit in, but I'm still trying to be committed to being authentic, but to only a certain degree? That That's a real, that's a real struggle. Yeah, whose version are so, you getting? Yeah. yeah. All right, so that takes us into um, chapter four. Uh, I love this. Uh, everyone can't be a golden girl. <laughs> and you, you said historically the workplace has a limited number of seats at the table for women and even fewer for women of color. Some women can't handle there being more than one woman at the table. They like being the only one. You see this regardless of race or age, it doesn't matter. It's timeless. Because you said, I picture Harriet Tubman having a seat, or excuse me, I picture Harriet Tubman having to set some women straight on the path down the Underground Railroad. Um, but can you talk about the importance of having more than one woman at the table? Uh, we speak about collaboration over competition, I think, on every episode. So please tell us what you were thinking when you were writing this chapter. Yeah, you know, I didn't get delved too much into it in this, this chapter, but it's one of those things where... So I think that there's some of us who want to create more seats for other women, right? We want to share the sauce, you know, it's better, we're better together, you know, all of the cliches, but then there are those women who, no matter black or white, red, yellow, green, they see the power of being the only one, right? And they might just block you from your opportunities, even if they look like you, because society has told us there's only one bite at this apple, right? There, there can't possibly be two. And I think, again, there's these stories that we tell ourselves or the stories that we've seen play out. And I think that depending on what environment you've worked in, that story might be true, right? You've only seen one or you've been the one and you're like, you know what? We're not going to bring anybody else here. And I think that that does, it does a disservice to, to everybody. And so I think the more that we can share it's going back to that squad right success is not a solo sport if you look at your career you didn't get to that seat probably by yourself somebody had to vouch for you someone had to give you the opportunity and so why wouldn't we want to do that 
for others. And more importantly, if you are a person of color, why wouldn't you do that for another person of color that deserves it, right? Who's working hard and, and it breaks my heart in my career. I was one of the only, so I didn't have um, the dynamics of working with other, you know, black people in that same way. But on the road, I've heard so many uh, black women, women of color say to me, you know, who's been just as bad? The ones that look like me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, um, and, and I, there's not, I think that that's just a horrible use of power, right? We could do so much better if we were on the same team. So, uh, you know, it's a new year. I hope if you're one of those people that you change your ways, <laughs> all of that stuff. Well, we didn't know if we were going to go there, but looks like we are. Sister. <laughs> we talked about this before the show. So listen, we got to let the people have it because, ooh, that is kind of like one of those unspoken challenges that we rarely talk about um, in public. What happens when the barrier is someone who looks like you, and how do you contend with that? Um, because, you know, we talked about this earlier, sister and I did, where we say, you know, we have a number of people who publicly will show up and profess that they believe in collaboration over competition, but sometimes it's different behind the scenes. And how do you navigate that space in a way where you are still honoring who you are and staying committed to your mission of collaborating with other women? Like, what would you say to a person that's struggling with that right now? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I say, and it's funny because I have the paperback version of the memo comes out later this fall, and I added a, a, two new chapters, and one of those is talking about um, what to say, right, when that happens. And, and what I will say is just as we talk about having those courageous conversations with people who don't look like us and hoping that they'll be courageous listeners, um, we have to do the same with the people who look like us, right? We can give them the benefit of the doubt, but I think it's important that we approach them and acknowledge, you know, we can do this together. We can be a resource. We don't have to compete. I'd love to be a resource for you. You know, let's see how we can make this better together, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and if you see that after that conversation, nothing has changed, then you know you need a different approach. But I think we have to let them know too that, hey, I see you, right? And, and sometimes we give each other passes that we shouldn't be giving either. Like in the back of the book, there's no more passes for my, for, for my, for my white readers. And we can't give each other passes too because our behavior to one another can be just as insidious as someone else. And so I think we've not had the conversations with each other that we need to have. And it doesn't have to be like, take it to the streets, but it's just very, you know, <laughs> diplomatic. Um, you know, how do we make this work? <laughs> can we make this work? <laughs> I mean, this is the reason that we do this podcast to show people um, that we can model the behavior. Um, sister and I support one another in everything that we do. And we don't just do it in public, we do it in private. And one thing that we found to your point about not giving out passes, um, when we reached out to you, you did not hesitate um, to do this interview. Um, there have been some other people that there's been some hesitation. And I've said before, um, people that um, are winning, they want you to win. Then you have another group of people, they don't want you to win past them. And so I think that, again, we do not have to take it to the streets, but we need to have some tough conversations around what that looks like, because I've seen it time and time again. Oh, yeah. Now, I've seen you know, it. Taking it to the streets would be we start naming folks. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> we don't have time. We're too blessed. 
to be messy and have this conversation because even I see that as an entrepreneur, there's so many um, black peers of mine who, when I wasn't doing very well, you know, I was just below, I didn't have the book. They were like, Oh, Minda, Minda, Minda. And then once I had these opportunities, they could have opened up a door for me or brought me into their company and they did not do it, you know? (laughs) And it hurt like heck because I'm like, I thought we were friends. And, and I realized to your point, we're we're cool as long as you're not doing any more than what you were doing. And so I've had to have, take us a hard pill and swallow it and say, okay, again, knowing who's for you is a blessing and knowing who's not is a, is a even bigger blessing. Right. And we just have to keep it pushing and find those people who do want to support and vice versa. Absolutely. So our way of referring to that is now I know where to put you. Um, (laughs) And so it just gives you clarity that you would not have had had you not gone through that experience. Um, But it leads to another um, issue of equity and that's in pay. I have a shirt that says, pay me like you pay him. And I told sister, I was like, if we were no video, I would have wore my shirt today for Minda because you really take a deep dive into the importance of advocating for yourself from a value perspective. And so the chapter that um, comes next is chapter five. And it's instead of more money, more problems, it's no money, more problems. And so I want to share this passage. What I will say is once I found out I could negotiate my salary, you best believe I upped the ante. We have to start asking, no more doing work for anything less than market value. It can be uncomfortable to talk about money, but it's even more uncomfortable when you have to dodge the bill collectors because you don't have enough money to pay your bills. And it's unfair to you to work over 40 hours a week and not bring home enough money to cover your expenses. This is um, an issue that Sister talks about all the time. And she talks about the difference between men and women when it comes to offers in the workplace and their willingness to negotiate. So so tell Minda a little bit about what you were telling me the other day when you are presenting offers. It's just um, time and time again, nine times out of 10, if I um, make an offer to a male, um, they always say, hey, I'd like to negotiate my salary. Um, And then, you know, you see the opposite with the women. When I offer them, they say, thank you. And they take the first offer given. And I've even coached them, you know, there's room built in here to negotiate. And for whatever reason, still in 2020, you just don't see it. And so love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, I think you see that. And I think even probably with a lot of black women in particular, we probably, we may be even asking for less, right? Because there is this wage gap that um, many of us anywhere from 48 cents to what, 68 cents. So Yes, there's the inequalities that are embedded in certain systems, but there's also part of the equation that we do have control over, and that's asking. And so that's what I always say, you know, you are your best advocate. If you're not asking for what you want, then it's not the other person's real job to give you that, you know, to to make you ask them. If you have someone like yourself sitting across the table that encourages that or what have you, then you've hit the jackpot. But um, there is that wiggle room. And so I, I felt it was really important to have the money conversation because oftentimes in black families, we don't talk about money. I know in my household, we didn't, we didn't talk about it when it was good. We didn't talk about it when it was bad. That was just none of your business. Right. And so when you grow up, you start to think that way too. And I know my first job, that paycheck was more than my parents had made combined. Right. So how, how dare I ask for more, <laughs> you know? but you realize that, listen, you tend to get these 
incremental, if you even get one, raises. And so if you say you want to make six-figure salary one day, if you never ask or you're just banking on the 3% every year, it's going to take a long time if you're at like 40,000 right now to get, to get that, right? And so you really have to ask and you have to be diligent. And if they say no, um, then follow up with that. Well, can we have this? What's it going to take to get to a yes? What are the steps that we can have a conversation in the next three months to see how we can get closer to that? But again, you can't ex we can't expect anyone to be our advocates, right? And if you find that you're making these asks and you're doing all the things, then maybe this is not the place for you, right? What if I told you you can do this job across the street and they're going to give you what you want, right? But I think sometimes, again, the story we tell ourselves is I'm grateful this is the best I've ever had it, um, right? But there, there sometimes is better and there's a range for a reason. Wow. So <laughs> after every time, I'm like, wow, <laughs> I told you, I, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Um, so it takes us right in. I, I love the flow of the, of the conversation and, of course, the book. So it does take us right into the uh, next chapter, which is invest in yourself. <laughs> let me say it again. And I, I know sister will chime in on this, but let me read um, to you guys. So Minda says, being your best advocate is not just dressing for the C-suite but also making sure your skills match the shoes. I need to read that again. <laughs> Being your best advocate is not just dressing for the C-suite, but also making sure your skills match the shoes. How are you going to rock the latest fashions when your skills are stuck in 1999? What good is it to walk around in your office with the latest fashions um, if you've never get invited into the boardroom to show them off? What if instead you were in a boardroom giving them the forecast, or excuse me, the fierce shoe aside game while delivering the presentation of a lifetime? Unfortunately, none of this happens because you never invested in fighting your fear of speaking in public. And so I think it was interesting because we talked about this before too. And we said, I've seen so many red bottoms where <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't in the boardroom. Um, so talk to us uh, about that. And, um, we joke about it, but in all seriousness, what does it look like when you say invest in yourself? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Probably about maybe in my late 20s, <clears throat> I noticed that some of my peers were really excelling in certain areas. And I remember asking one of my colleagues, you know, how did your something, you know, at the time I didn't have the language, but, you know, I was asking them about their executive presence because I could tell that it was, you know, something had changed. <laughs> and they said, oh, they gave me a coach. And I'm like, coach, <laughs> you know, what is that? And, and these are things, again, that we sometimes don't even know that um, are, that we could ask for. And so some of my colleagues were, had executive coaches to help them along the way to have that to get closer to the C-suite and to um, help ask for what they want. And once I realized that there was someone in my squad that I could add to help me level up, I, I was like, you know what? I, I can stop going to happy hour a couple times with my girlfriends and invest this couple hundred dollars in a coach. Um, and for me, one of the first things that I really uh, invested in was the public speaking. And it wasn't, and it's so funny because I'm like, look at God back, you know, Ten years ago, I never in my wildest dreams intended to be a public speaker, but I knew when I looked around the table, 
the people who shined were the people who could articulate their value and quantify their worth. And I was nervous and I was an introvert. And I'm like, you know what? I got to go take me some public speaking courses so I can hone in on this. So when I'm at the table, I can use my voice and advocate for myself and for others, but I can't do it with the skills I have right now. And so I took courses, I took improv classes. I really honed in on that skill and it was the best thing I could have ever done. So oftentimes I'm, you know, hear a lot of women say, Oh, I'm not paying a hundred dollars, you know, to go to a conference or I'm not paying, you know, whatever for a career coach. But it's like, why wouldn't you, you know, <laughs> why wouldn't you, uh, if you say you want to level up. And I think that there's so many ways to do it. Um, and just being open to, um, somebody who can help you when you're, with your blind spots that you may not even know exist. So I want to see us with the red bottoms in the boardroom. I love it. Um, I will say, I know sister will not plug herself, but she's an executive coach. Um, and to your point, I've told, I've had several conversations with people. Hey, well, do you, do you know what Dr. Angela does? Um, and they'll say, oh, tell me more. Or we had a young lady on one of our closest friends um, and she is um, a director in Toastmasters. Um, I hope I got her title right. But, uh, um, but she talks about, you know, that, you know, it's, it's up to us to really go and take these speaking classes and invest in yourself. So sister, do you want to add anything about that? Because we put it out there, but then again, people have to take the initiative. When I read this chapter, I wanted to jump up and run around and like proclaim, yes, somebody gets it. Because as an executive coach, a lot of times the people that are sitting in front of me don't look like me. And it's sometimes difficult to sell the value of what comes with coaching. There's one particular part of the chapter where you talk about all winners have coaches. And I'm like, exactly. Um, and so I think having this conversation where we really emphasize the importance of investing, not just in who you are today, but really having a plan around where you want to go and having someone help you strategize. Like I tell my clients, you know, I'm the coach, but you're the quarterback. I don't call the plays. I just advise you as you call the plays on the field. And it's a game changer. So for this much of your book to be dedicated to investing in yourself in that way, not just what you look like on the inside, on the outside, but investing on who you are, you know, on the inside and the impact of that. I was blown away and super excited to see it. So really thank you for that one. Um, so it really um, leads us into, um, speaking of coaching, it's not just about career paths, but also personal development. So one of the things you talked about in the next chapter, which was Empire State of Mind, and I heard you mention this on your live the other day, uh, you talked about imposter syndrome. And there was a passage that I wanted to read because oftentimes, you know, as women of color, we're made to feel like we should be grateful to be in the room. And it puts us in a position where sometimes we neglect to value the investment that we've made to be in the room. And so I thought that this passage um, was so important. And you said, the blessing and the curse of my obsession with success was that on paper, I was achieving success, but mentally, I was always worried about what others thought, wanting desperately to prove I was not a product of my environment and spending lots of unnecessary energy trying to keep up with the Joneses. But I was never comfortable in my own skin, and I was grateful for every opportunity that came my way as if I hadn't worked my butt off for it. And so the question that I had was, how do you strike the balance between being grateful but also owning 
every ounce of your success? Yeah, that, you know, that's a, a tough one because I think that that's also something, you know, <laughs> Beyonce, she says, I woke up like this. I, I didn't wake up like that, right? It was a journey uh, to get, get here. And I still struggle with that in certain ways. But what I realize is we don't celebrate our wins enough. And if you're not celebrating your wins, who, who is, right? Obviously, we do have people who are rooting for us and happy when we do, you know, hit those milestones. But we have worked so hard. And I think that because we've worked so hard, we don't often get to enjoy um, the success and just sit back and, and we talked earlier about the pause, right? And say, wow, you know what? I did that. I, I did those things and this is pretty cool and there's other things I wanna do. And, and so I think owning our success, because I think our counterparts do such a great job, many of them, of owning their successes. They don't shy away from it. You know, earlier, um, early on on my book tour, I would get very uncomfortable with, my bio being written, right? Where I'm just like, oh, I wish they didn't have to read it. Can't I just get up there and just we start talking, right? And um, it took a long time and I'm still getting there, but to say, and, and there was one moment where I was like, wow, I can't believe I did some of those things, right? That, they've sa that they said, you know? Um, and so for me, I realized our stories are inspiration for other people. And so again, once I tell myself that it's not just for me, but it's someone else, you don't even know who's watching, who's inspired by the things that you're doing. And if you never talk about it and we don't see ourselves in the magazines, how will people know that these things are obtainable, that they're, that they're uh, accessible? And so that's how I, I have learned to be more comfortable about sharing my successes and my wins, but also finding the balance, right? Because I am blessed to have some of these opportunities and I, and I won't shy away from saying that that, that, that these are blessings, but I think that you can um, be, uh, have a little hu humble, humble brags at time, right? I think they're healthy <laughs> because, because we, can, we can do a good job of, you know, tearing down ourselves or mad at ourselves when we didn't hit the milestone. So I think we do need to encourage more humble bragging at times. We have an episode that's, uh, I was just going to share no, ever so clap for your damn self, clap for your <laughs> damn self. <laughs> um, because we touch on exactly that. I, I think it's important, especially for our daughters, to see that we do exist and what that looks like. Go ahead, sister. No, what I was going to say is, Minda was talking. It made me think about uh, when I graduated from grad school uh, with my doctorate, and she said, "Listen, you're going to stop, and you're going to celebrate this moment because it was almost like." oh, you, you graduated on Saturday. And I'm like, yeah, but I got to plan the parent picnic at the girls' school on Monday. And she was like, no. Do you understand what just happened? Do you understand, like, I've been here with you for this whole journey. I know you've been up nights on end. I know the sacrifices you've made. You're going to pause. She's like, you're a whole doctor out here in these streets. And so, <laughs> but she had that conversation with me because I think you're right. We just get in the habit of going on to the next thing and not really appreciating the value and the hard work that we put into certain moments in our lives. That's, that's typical. <laughs> so I have to chime in here and tell Minda. So she was so just like, yeah, you know, I'm graduating today. And then, so we had a banner made that said Dr. Anderson. And we could see her coming off the stage looking like, I cannot believe they did it. Oh, we're clapping today. <laughs> Minda, it covered it row of the theater I was mortified I was like they did not just do this they were in the balcony and stretched this banner all the way across the section 
And they were like, we don't care, like, because I was the only person that finished with the doctorate that day. And so I was on the stage with the faculty, and they're like, people need to know that you're a graduate, that you're not, the, you know, with the faculty. And so afterwards, because they did that, people were coming up to your point and saying, oh, my goodness, like, I saw you do it so I can do it. And thank you so much for showing this. So you're right. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's bigger than us. Mm-hmm. We have to show people that it's possible, that it's yeah. possible. So you're exactly right. Absolutely. So um, a couple of other things we want to touch on. Again, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been great. Um, and this is something that I know, uh, again, personally, I've had to really take a look at and I've experienced it. But you touch on um, as women of color, we have this extra glass ceiling and extra layer of pressure uh, to be perfect. Can you talk about the invisible perfection pressure? Yeah. You know, it's so funny because when I was writing that section, I was like, well, is this imposed is on ourselves or is this uh, taught along the way? Uh, trying to figure out kind of where the, the intersections cross. But I think from very young ages, we are told that you have to work, you know, 10 times harder, you have to, you, there's no room for error. And so you're already going into the workplace on eggshells. <laughs> you're like, I can't mess this up, right? And I think that that's a very damaging mindset. It's really hard to have that empire state of mind when you're always worried at every turn, right? Because if I say it this way, then they're gonna think this, or if I do that, and I think that it's really, I don't think people understand how hard it is for some of us to show up in an environment, try to be twice as hard, try to handle the microaggressions, try to do a good job, like all of the things and still keep from not running out of that door before five, right? You know, because we can't take it anymore. Like we, we have this, we know what we have to do and we come in and do it. And I think that to some degree, yes, it helps us um, get into these spaces and have that thick skin, but we shouldn't have to be perfect for everything, right? There is this different type of job description that is imposed, I think, on, on women of color and black women. And um, I'm a, I don't have any kids, so maybe I'm out of pocket for even saying what I'm about to say, but I do think that we, ha- we can't keep telling our kids that you have to be better than everybody else, right? Bring your unique ge- genius. I, work, work ethic is great, right? But we don't have to work so hard that we kill ourselves. And I think for Black women, I think we, again, we work so hard that sometimes we have all these ailments from what we've been through and traumas, workplace trauma, et cetera, and we don't get to celebrate the wins. We don't get to enjoy some of um, the benefits of our hard work. And so what would it look like to, if we created that space for ourselves, um, to again, have those conversations? Because Maybe we don't have to work 10 times harder than Kim, right? But we just have to do. <laughs> so I thought it was important for us to, to put it on the table because, again, these are some of the things that we don't talk about out loud, right? And I think that having that pressure, that extra layer, that extra glass is really killing us softly, if I could say that. And, um, and I think we have to talk about it more because that's a toxic work environment and nobody can thrive in a toxic work environment. 
That's really good. Uh, perfect is the enemy. Um, I know for years I tried so hard to show up at work and be perfect, um, try to be the perfect mom. And I called sister one day and I was like, I, I just don't have time. She said, what's the problem? I said, well, I've been at work all day and now I have to take, I have to make some cupcakes. And she said, no, no, you don't. You can go to the store and buy some. <laughs> and so again, it is, it, it can really have um, I feel like, a, like you said, a, a, a real damaging effect on our children because now we've shown them that you have to be perfect and it, it's just not a reality. So good. Mm -hmm. Thank you. But through these conversations, we are coming to terms with exactly what you said and allowing ourselves to be more vulnerable in front of other people because that's where the true strength is. You know, in our previous episode with Kelsey, which is Candace's daughter, um, we were talking about how can our kids expect to survive, you know, challenges if we never show them that we have them. And we can't have conversations about how we navigate it through that space. If we don't, the first time something arises in their lives and they can't handle it, they're going to think something's wrong. And so I think it is important that we're having these conversations and also that we're putting boundaries and limits mm -hmm. on how far we're willing to push ourselves in this climate. It just comes from speaking up and setting some boundaries. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think some of it is self-imposed, but we have to do a better job of advocating for ourselves. So I, that was another amazing, like there's so many gems in this book. I know we keep saying that like this one, this one, but every time you turn the page, you're like, yeah, like you're cheering out loud. You are taking notes and you're like, wait a minute. Sometimes there were um, periods where I had to step away from the book and process what I just read and come back to it to make sure that we were doing it justice. Like sister and I, we would say, did you read the part where <laughs> she called me? I was driving down the street and she called me. I had to pull over. I was like, listen, <laughs> and it's just that real. So hopefully everyone will go out if they don't already have it and get it because I've had to pull over on the side of the road and take a minute. That's real. <laughs> Stop, turn the radio down. You got to hear this. You got to hear it in the way that she's written it, um, which really, <laughs> To chapter eight, which is the last one we'll talk about today, but chapter eight was no more passes. And so one of the things that sister and I say all the time, I'll say, I'm fresh out. <laughs> and when I say I'm fresh out, she knows no, like zero passes today. And so you said no more pass, uh, passes, and this is for my white readers. And we were like, whoa, is she really going to write this? Is she really going to have this conversation? And you did. Like, you talk about everything from hair to allies, to, you know, the fact that someone's saying that you are so articulate is not a compliment. <laughs> what made you decide to finally write this chapter in the way that you did it? I mean, everything on the table. Yeah, <laughs> that, that chapter was, I struggled with that chapter uh, because after I wrote the book, that was the last chapter I wrote out of, and I kind of went out of sequence writing some of the chapters, but that was my last one. And I said, you know what? Um, the, uh, all of it is for us, but this one, I really want to talk to those who are going to read this part of the book. And I feel like so much of our lives, we've been silenced. We've been afraid to say some of the things, bring it up. And I felt, you know what, if this is my opportunity to lay it all on the line, to write the book, if another publisher doesn't 
doesn't put another book like this out for a long time. Like I got to say the thing, right? <laughs> I gotta make it, I gotta make it clear and I gotta make it plain. And, um, and we can't leave any room for ambiguity because you know, there's so many, I didn't mean any harm and this, that, and the other. And I, you know, and I'm like, we're tired, we're tired, you know, in order for us to have these seats and secure them, there's going to be some behavior modifications that have to take place <laughs> in our counterparts. And that's just the reality of it. And I, I was very clear to say, you know, I'm, I'm telling you this with love and frustration, right? Because it's so important that we talk about this. And I've had so many white uh, men and women who've reached out to me and they said, you know what? Thank you for the memo. The memo was a gift because I didn't know. And clearly nobody was comfortable telling me, or maybe they had told me and I just was too in my own way. Right. And um, and managers are reading this book. I know several companies who have added the memo to their management training uh, modules because how do you manage diverse talent if you don't if you're saying these things to people and aggressing them a couple times a day? And so it was really important for me to lay it all on the line, say the things that we've been waiting to say <laughs> that haven't been maybe politically correct. And I have to say this last thing is that even um, so my publisher was a team of all white men and women. And so when I got to that chapter and I submitted it to my editor, I, I like closed my eyes. I'm like, I don't know what she's going to say on this one, but I just pushed it. And then, <laughs> and then I knew it had to like go up the ranks. And I'm just like, oh, you, you, you're taking one for the team and to just send it. And, and then even when I recorded the audio book, the, you know, the engineer, he was white and, and he'd be like, say that part again. I'd be like, <laughs> think I can say it a five more times, you know, but I realized that it was uncomfortable, right? But we had to. And hopefully that creates, again, reminding myself, this is bigger than me, right? If, if five white people read this portion and they do something different, then that makes the workplace better than it was yesterday. <laughs> so that's what I love about why companies are having me come in and have workshops and talks and fireside chats, because it's, they realize at first they're a little afraid of, oh, what's she going to come in and say? Is she going to, you know, burn the place down? And then they, they leave at the end, everybody's happy. They're like, how can we keep having this conversation? Cause people are so fearful of what they don't know. They think race right. is a bad thing. Right. But we come out more, more in sync than we were when we all entered, you know, the auditorium. So I think we leaders going into 2020 and beyond, it's going to require empathy and it's going to require critical conversations. Absolutely. Like um, when we got to the part about hair, <laughs> I'm like, she is even going to talk about hair. But this is something that comes up so often. Like probably a couple of weeks ago, we were having the authenticity conversation. Sister, you remember this where we were saying, yeah, we say we show up as our authentic selves, but do we really? Like, because even down to the hairstyle that we choose or the clothes that we choose when we go into a space, is that really who we are or have we just become conditioned to showing up in this way? And so it reminded me, um, sister, I was going to tell the story of the lady when I was shopping in the department store and she walked up and she grabbed my hair. Mm -hmm. um, and so this happens all the time. I was having a conversation with two other ladies and we were talking about hair because it was a hair care aisle. And this lady <laughs> walks up and she's like, oh my goodness, I love your hair. And she grabbed like a handful of my hair. I didn't, this is a stranger. I didn't know her. And so in that moment, it was that point where I was like, not today. I, I can't do this today. And so I, in return, grabbed a portion of her hair. And I said, do you see how uncomfortable this is considering we don't know each other and you didn't give me permission? And she said, 
I'm so sorry. She was taken back because the moment that I pulled her on her, she was immediately able to see and feel how uncomfortable that was. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think until that moment she would, had actually even considered it, but those are the types of things we have to discuss because I think there's been a lot of comfort around showing up with us in a certain way. And if we don't say anything, it will continue to happen. Yep, absolutely. So this has been amazing. Sister, did you want to add anything? I know there's been some discussion in your area about this topic as well. So no, I just wanted to, again, uh, thank Minda. Um, I, I know we thanked you time and time again, but for one, just putting it all on the table. Um, and for two, saying the things that I've wanted to say. So having the courage to write this book um, and continuing to deliver this message. So for me, is there anything else um, that you would like to leave with the readers or the readers? <laughs> Not just, I'm like, I'm already talking about <laughs> the readers. And I'll <laughs> the <laughs> so they have to go buy the book. I've already spoke that, but um, with the listeners that you would feel like they really need to hear from on today. Yeah, I think, you know, basically just don't forget that. So right now, again, you know, we're in this new whatever normal is right now. And I don't know how long we're going to be in it. But if you don't, t- I know we've dropped a lot of gems today, but just remember that you could still secure your seat from the house. Your goals don't stop. Your strategy may be tweaked just a little bit, but this is the time where we have to advocate for ourselves um, and articulate our values so that those who are, um, maybe they're creating positions right now that you're thought of for those things. And um, number three, uh, articulating your value, like kind of jot down what are those things that, and why do I want these next steps? You know, what are my short-term, my long-term goals? And, and the things that I'm saying yes to, does that get me any closer? Or do I need to say no to some things? So what would it look like just to center yourself? And I hope going in, you know, the rest of the year, you will try to put yourself first um, and do a check-in with your feelings. Because again, sometimes we've made a lot of concessions and it's time to, to put ourselves first. That's great. And so also we'd like for you to talk a little bit um, with the listeners about the Memo LLC and some of the other things that you're doing, um, your podcast, and other ways that they can support some of your other efforts. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so yes, you can find me on mindahearts.com and then I have everything, podcast, the whole nine is all on that site. My company, the Memo LLC, that's myweeklymemo.com and we host um, career, we call them career boot camps, but they're Uh, webinars that, you know, how do you ask for more? How do you negotiate your salary? Some of those things, and we do it in a group setting. It's, it's not replacing a career coach. It's more so just having community to talk about the things that maybe you need some extra support on. Uh, So we help with, it's for those who are preparing for their seat, right? There's certain things that we need, certain tools that we need in our toolkit. And so we just provide some additional resources to help you, you know, be ready when that seat opens up. Uh, Great. Well, I know for me, again, thank you so much for taking uh, this time today. Uh, Going forward, my new response will be when I get asked any sort of question that I'm uncomfortable answering, I will say, uh, go ask Minda, just read the memo. Have you read the memo? (laughs) That will be my new thing. Have you read the memo? (laughs) And if they they can't say yes, then I'm going to say, go buy it. (laughs) If you want to know what I'm really thinking, go read the memo. Like, what? Yes, that is my new. And sister will tell you, Minda, 
that will be how I will answer the question. Have you read it? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for being my unofficial saleswoman. <laughs> You know what I said? Sister? I said, and you might even say, and I suggest you start with chapter eight. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Read it backwards. No. <laughs> but no, this has been amazing. And I'm just so glad that you said yes, that you showed up, not just in public, but you immediately agreed to support. Um, that means so much. And we need to show more of this um, among women that this is possible. So please, I know we've said it multiple times. Go out and support this book. Go to the Memo LLC. Go to MendaHearts.com and utilize these amazing resources because, um, Minda, you've done an amazing job. So we also want to say that we're so proud of you. If you've not heard that in a while, it's important that we say that to one another as well. So we're happy for you. We're cheering you on. Uh, we know that this is just the beginning um, and that hopefully you'll get back to your tour soon when all this is over. Um, but so much success. We wish you all the success you can hold. So well, thank, thank you, you for seeing for me. Thank you for seeing me. Uh, and I wish you both the best too. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe and share so we can grow this movement. If you have show ideas or would like to be considered as a special guest, you can email us at justberealsis at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Just Be Real Sis Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. As always, remember to serve first, stay encouraged, be kind, and just be real, sis. <laughs>